0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Celeste Currington and Jennifer Lindquist, the authors of Dating Divide, Race and Desire in the Era of Online Romance. How are you doing today? We're doing Good. Doing well, thanks. Thank you for being on the program. I wonder if you could start by telling us a little about yourselves and how you got started on this project.
2: Sure, I can start. This is Jen speaking. Um, I would say this project got started many, many years ago. It was a class that I was teaching on uh, race and immigration. And we spent a lot of time in the class discussing racial segregation in the United States and how it continues to be so pervasive, you know, seeping beyond just neighborhoods, but also our school systems, churches, workplaces, and basically all the places that we socialize. And one of the um, big topics of discussion in that class at the time was, you know, how can sort of this third space, the internet and digital technology, can that be sort of an agent of disruption to these high levels of segregation? And uh, Ken, who is one of the authors on the the book, um, later suggested the idea of, well, what about dating websites? How is that a way to look at impact, right? Could dating websites be a way of looking at how, you know, we've had for so many years, I mean, for centuries, essentially, um, very low levels of interracial marriage. In the past, that was because of, you know, anti-miscegenation laws, which were Past to keep people from different races from marrying and, and having sexual relations with each other and then later due to segregation uh, following the civil rights era so the question is you know would dating websites be a way to allow people to bypass these sort of very segregated and, and embodied spaces so that's kind of how we came up with that we were really interested in you know um, beyond what people say like the polite thing to say um, what do people actually do and that's was really appealing to us. We have all of this data. We can actually see how what people do. Um and it would really from a, you know, from a theoretical perspective in, in our in our discipline, it would enable us to sort of ho- hopefully unpack the the barriers to interracial relationships is it because of segregation, so people just don't have contact with each other to even get to know each other to then end up dating and maybe getting married or cohabiting? Or is there, you know, racial antipathy, racial preferences that are operating? And this enabled us, we thought, to really be able to separate those two things. So that's really how the whole conversation started. Um, And then we ended up doing a lot of work on it um, and writing various papers and then ended up, well, Celeste can talk about the uh, all of the interviews that we did. Um, so that that's that's my piece.
1: Why is it important to analyze dating behavior in the twenty first century by racial preference?
2: Um, well, the legacy of slavery, what we argue in this book, it it continues to haunt our erotic lives. So um, one of the, one of the things that really interests us is that um, intimate life, is so often not a part of the discussion around racial inequality in this country. And yet, when you think back to the resistance to civil rights in the 50s and 60s, it was all driven by the fear of interracial mixing um, because of the fear of that you know, emerging interracial families. But when we talk about racial inequality today, we tend to focus on the really immediate outcomes like economic inequality, police murders and brutality, prison industrial complex, etc., so to a lot of people, I think intimate relationships seem really trivial by comparison. But sort of this avoidance and separation as a result of segregation and everything else results in fear, distrust, um, manifests and potential distaste for people of other races. Um, and essentially that is what's driving all of these factors. So we, we really wanted to call attention to the disconnect between You know, how one views race as a public issue and how race operates in our private lives. So, you know, for example, um, people and these are would be embodied in some of the people that we interviewed, someone who's really progressive and thinks of themselves as very, um, you know, um, open to racial relations, integration, et cetera. Maybe an activist even for BLM, a white person may still have racial preferences in dating that maybe exclude black people. And so um, in the way that people are able to make this sort of separation is they, it's, this con- it's this unconscious way of thinking of this is a personal decision. It's not collected to the political, right? Um, and so it's it's easier to identify racial injustice in society than looking inward. And yet um, we strongly believe that it begins internally. And that's I, I would say that's the, the uh, one of the primary motivations um, around why we think it's important to look at interracial uh, dating in the 21st century. And there's lots of other reasons too, but that's just one of them.
3: Yeah, and also I'd like to add that um, one argument that we make in the book is that we can learn a lot about interpersonal relationships by looking at interracial and specifically dating behaviors and patterns and feelings about dating. Um, so, again, the question is, I think, at least what we argue is that some of the that kind of individualized meaning that they, that participants make around who they are interested in dating or not, who they want to connect with on an app or not, can also connect to other kind of social processes in their, their private network. So, for example, their friendship groups, uh, the people that they're willing to invite over. Um, to the people that they that they kind of hang out with with their children, you know? Some of these people have very homogenous um, social circles, very homo- racially homogenous private lives, and they might espouse publicly uh, support for, you know, racial justice. And so we just want to confirm that a lot can be gained um, when we think about Dating um, and uh, r- how race operates in our private lives. So it's not just about dating, it's about dating, but it's not just about dating too. Some of the same narratives that people use um, about just who they kind of want to hang out with can also relate to this idea of personal preference.
1: Tell us about the survey in your book and who's included.
2: Oh, so do you mean the data for our book? Uh, So uh, basically uh, we have millions and millions and millions of online dating interactions um, and profile information from a um, online dating website. And we analyze all of that. So we're able to look at what people say their preferences are and control for all other kinds of factors, um, you know, such as, um, attractiveness and socioeconomic status education etc um and we're able to analyze actually how they interact with other daters and focus on race um and then we interviewed um 77 and actually celeste you interviewed even more for uh, you continued with that project um but 77 different raters of uh, daters of many different sexual preferences and races etc um these interviews lasted generally about an hour and a half to two hours, Um, and so we brought all of that data in to help us make sense of um, the large data set of um, statistics that we had. And then we also did a lot of archival research um, for this book.
1: You talk about the Cheerios commercial and the backlash. What does that tell us about the acceptance of interracial marriages?
3: Well, I think it shows, you know, interestingly, um, the Cheerios commercial came out during a time in which inter- kind of like this larger narrative around interracial partnerships was that, you know, they're part of the future, that we're in this more kind of, I don't want to say post-racial, but we're in a more perhaps racially harmon- <laughs> harmonious um Um, phase of society, that we've moved beyond, for example, some of the issues of the past. Um, So, of course, that was, I guess, that's been the way that interracial couples have been um, conventionally thought of as going beyond race or kind of reflections of change. Um, But when the commercial came out, we kind of saw that that might not be the case, that there's clearly um, prejudice um, bias against interracial couples, um, dis, you know, distrust, hate, racism that they experience. Um, so yeah, I think that that situation really showed the contradictions in interracial partnership that we know, for example, and it kind of ties into our our project that we know, for example, that interracial partnership has increased more so than the past, certainly after 1967 once anti-miscegenation laws are struck down alongside increased immigration, et cetera. And so we know, you know, we are in a different moment, but at the same time, the contradiction is that they still face, um, you know, violence and, um, and discrimination. And also, um, just to, to
2: contextualize the Cheerios commercial, that's just one of many that we reference in the book and, um, the idea here is that, you know, the internet is really interesting because it, it's able to tell us what people's deeper, maybe not always expressed feelings are. Um, and so this is just one example. But um, for for those in the audience who may not remember the commercial, um, it was a multiracial family having breakfast, eating Cheerios, obviously, um, with children, um, multiracial children. And I think it was like a a black mother and a white father, um, and while most of the, posi- the the comments, I think it ended up on YouTube after it was popular on um, on TV for a while, and it's the online comment sections where you saw the really really toxic um, expressions of racism and hate, uh, and in large part, this reflects one of the things that we study throughout the book, and still study today, and that is the online disinhibition effect. Um, That which means essentially it's a lot like road raging. People behave in ways that they never normally would face-to-face due to anonymity, lack of accountability in the online world. And that's where you find um, among some individuals the high levels of misogyny, racism, et cetera, coming out. So in some ways the internet has been a real wake-up call um, to society because we're seeing what maybe we always knew existed, but we're seeing it... And we can't deny it. We can't deny that there are there are high levels of of hatred um, around many topics, but in this case, interracial, um, interracial families and interracial interactions. So, yeah, I mean, online comment sections are pretty much notorious for this. You know, most newspapers and online magazines have actually had to discontinue um, their comment sections because they are so toxic, because they're anonymous.
1: And that's one of the biggest problems. You talk about digital sexual racism. Can you explain that to the audience?
3: Yeah, sure. So digital sexual racism, um, the way that we conceptualize it in the book, it's kind of an offshoot of sexual racism, which is something that's been studied for quite some time within the field of sociology, but also other interdisciplinary fields as well. And so um, sexual racism is kind of like the, it's like ranking individuals as desirable and attractive or as romantic partners in a way that reinforces um, racial hierarchy. Um, typically racial hierarchy of desirabilities where whiteness or closer to whiteness <clears throat> is placed on the top of the hierarchy. Um, but what we argue is that with online dating, Um, with kind of the new um, technology, inherent online dating, within the context of kind of not seeing race or the rise of what we call colorblind racism, neoliberal colorblind racism, as well as within the context of consumerism. um, The technology disguises racial discrimination um, as kind of um, an individual pre- uh, an individual pre- preference and this is also part of kind of the, the anonymity that's also uh, built within these online dating apps. Um, and so that's what we argue. We argue that it's kind of a form of racism that operates online that's facilitated by these apps and it, in fact polices digital self-representation, um, reinforces hierarchies of desirability, really without the need for, you know, avoidance or in per like in-person avoidance.
2: Yeah. And just to, um, to f- expand on that a little bit, I mean, one of the really interesting things about digital sexual racism is that, you know, racial preference could not be seen in the past. It was really just inferred. Although of course, anti-miscegenation laws made them very explicit. So, these online platforms have um, really cemented sort of this, the very idea of racial preference being a thing. So people can actually, when looking for a potential mate, you know, have a drop-down menu, which enables them to filter out or search only for people of specific races. Anywhere else, that would be in today's society to be really problematic, but it's been accepted as normal, as just kind of consumer choice, individual choice. Um, and this is new. So prior to the rise of internet-based searching, the way marriage markets, dating markets worked is individuals encountered potential mates in a, like a kind of a sequential manner or a much smaller, not a huge market manner. And so it didn't require the conscious development of preferences. I'm not saying preferences weren't there, but there was no conscious solidification of, oh, I have this racial preference and I don't have this. And now people have really just accepted it as normal, um, as though it's not in any way related to the legacy of racism in this country, but just you know an individual choice, like wanting you know pepperonis on your pizza as opposed to plain cheese pizza. And we argue throughout the book that it's actually much more um, pernicious than that.
3: Um, and, and then to add, part of digital sexual racism is not just about rejecting or kind of filtering out individuals, but it can also be related to being interested in, in, um, in individuals, you do these different types of kind of stereotypes related to, for, for example, racialized femininity and masculinity. So like the idea that, well, when we spoke to participants, some, um, for example, black women mentioned that white men were interested in them, but they were interested in them because they were Black women. They adhered to all these really racist, negative stereotypes about Black women as like sexually um, aggressive, et cetera. So that can, that's also part of digital sexual racism. See, these individuals can go online and contact people of a different racial background and do so in a way that is dehumanizing, that's kind of... Um, misogynistic and that doesn't necessarily mean they're filtering them out or they're not interested in them, but the racial, their racial preference is still shaped by um, these kind of um, stereotypes and demonized historical controlling images, like we call them in sociology of entire groups.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point, Celeste. And um so many of the women in particular, but also some gay men that we interviewed talked about never knowing whether the person that they were dating or that contacted them online was interested in them as a person or as more of a fetish. And that was this constant feeling based on so many very negative, alienating comments they'd received from other people based solely on their race and gender often um, that really mediated the way that they sort of always felt this sort of ambiguous um, anxiety of, okay, is it, is it me or is it my race for better or for worse? Mostly for worse is often, um, what they suspected.
1: Now you talk about the markers that people use to categorize people. Can you expand on that?
2: Uh, yeah, I, one thing I would say about, um, it's kind of an extension of one of our arguments for digital sexual racism Um, you know, markers are visual cues, right? And so, uh, and appearance. And one thing um, that is very apparent when all of the dating market has moved to these online situations is that the visual becomes even more emphasized than other factors um, in who, how people are interacting with other people online. Um, And that's another way that in some ways, this, this new form of racism shows that people are even more hyper-focused in on appearance, which is also related to skin tone and phenotype, et cetera. But generally markers, you know, in um, uh, social scientists who study assortative mating, um, I would say the primary predictors of, um, of connection and dating marriage tends to be around, well, age is obviously a very large structural factor, Um as well as race. As we find race is actually the most important uh, factor that people um, sort on. And then there's also acquired characteristics such as you know, education, socioeconomic status, which has become much more important over the years um, for people uh, seeking uh, potential mates, particularly also men seeking females. Socioeconomic status has risen in importance. Um, and many have speculated that acquired characteristics such as education is probably going to become the strongest predictor of why couples get together. But what we found is race is still the number one predictor that trumps at even, even education, for example. So, you know, in some of our analyses, we found that, um, you know, um, even if a highly educated, um, choosing between a highly educated black woman online who's, you know, um, attractive, just as attractive and, um, has all of the same kinds of profile characteristics as a white woman, but where the white woman say, doesn't have a college degree, that college educated man will still go except unless he's a black man, every other race will still go for the, the white woman uh, who doesn't have, um, education because race is trumping education, which I think a lot of people found unexpected in our, in our results.
1: Well, what is the current state of the interracial unions? You talk about cohabitation, dating. What What's the difference? What's going on there?
2: Like the current, the current, um, state of interracial marriage levels, cohabitation levels. Yes. Writ large. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, there's no question that interracial marriage and cohabitation, um, as measured by like census data, household data, um, has increased since the striking down of Loving versus Virginia, which was um, an anti-miscegenation law that prohibited people from being with each other from different races. That was in 1967. So interracial marriage has increased since then. However, the really surprising thing is, is that the levels are much, much lower Um, than what you would expect um, if people were completely open. And that's, again, we come full circle back to sort of the original question that we were asking in that class many years ago. Are interracial levels of marriage and cohabitation so low because people just don't come into contact with each other, or is it prejudice and bias? And so that's really what this book was about. But in terms of um, sort of the trends, it's definitely increased, um, and there are differences by gender, and there are differences by race uh, within um, uh, within interracial marriage. So whites, in part due to their size, but also due to preference, are least likely to um, marry and cohabit outside of their own race. Um, and Asians uh, and Lat- falls closely by Latinos are most likely, um, to be in uh, interracial partnerships, although it's still a minority. Um, and Black Americans are least likely to be in uh, interracial um, partnerships. And there are differences by, um, by gender, which we can talk more about because we, we do a lot of that analysis throughout the book, intersectionality around this. But what we find is that Black men are more likely than Black women um, to outmarry um, someone of a different race, and Asian women are more likely than Asian men to outmarry someone of a different race. And the most common form of interracial marriage is white and black, or white and Hispanic, or white and. It tends it, it, the idea of a Hispanic and Asian being together or Asian black is much less common than a white um, uh, interracial marriage or household union.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
3: And Jen would know this um, as she's a demographer, but I believe that those who do interracial marriage tend to be more affluent than those who co- co- cohabit, correct? So, I mean, that's in general with marriage. So with there's class, although there might be increased levels of interracial marriage in the United States prior, um, compared to the past, we're still seeing that in general, there's a lot of class homogamy that's going on in marriages. And you see that within interracial partner um, marriage patterns as well, correct? Yeah, that's exactly true. So the more highly educated
2: a person is, the more likely they are to be in an interracial marriage.
1: Now, what did you find concerning the connection between prejudice or lack of exposure to um, people for, for example, neighborhoods, schools, churches, employment? Did you find anything looking at people who never leave their areas?
2: Mm. Uh, You know, we didn't have granular enough of data to be able to, I mean, I would have loved to be able to link that um, to link people's actual um, day-to-day lives outside of the internet to all the information we had on the inside of the internet um, and how they operated on dating platforms because we could learn so much from that. Um, All we can do is really make inference. um, And I would say that there's no question that those who are, open to dating people who are different from themselves um, but wouldn't normally have had the opportunity to do so because they live and work and go to school, for example, in a highly racially segregated area, the internet does allow them to meet people who are different from them in ways that are are not different in their surrounding areas. And there is evidence um, from some other studies that we pull on in, in our book Um, That shows that for those without preferences, that the Internet does, um, the Internet's greater exposure to other individuals does result in higher levels of um, interracial unions.
3: Yeah, and there's research that also looks at kind of, um, it looks at the relationship between whether or not someone who, when they were an adolescent or a young, you know, a young person, if they had friends of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, were they more, are they more likely to also engage in interracial relationships, like intimate relationships as young adults? Um, so for example, Jen, I'm thinking of like Grace Cow's work mm-hmm. and, um, I believe they do find that that is true. So it does support like contact hypotheses. Um, but yeah, that's just one thing that came to mind when you asked the question of whether or not, you know, segregation in neighborhoods, workplaces, church, does that somehow um, influence, you know, the likelihood of perhaps crossing racial lines? Mm-hmm. I think some of the research suggests, yeah, it does.
2: Yeah, I, I love Grace Cowell's new book because, um, and I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the other authors, uh, but there were other authors writing it with her, um, because it, uh it shows the strength and the power of the social contact hypothesis, which is a very old theory um, in, in sociology and other social sciences. But the idea here is that when people come into contact with each other um, in an equal way, so it can't be you know like you, uh, you're um, working as you know a domestic cleaner for someone, um, but rather you're working as equal colleagues together. Um, that. People are much more likely to, when you're separated from each other, it's easy to develop stereotypical assumptions about people who are different from you. When you work together, you see them as humans, as human beings, and see them and they become friends, et cetera. And what um, this book uh, found is that there's a long term effect. So when people mix with people of different races um, in um, school, they're also, that, that's very formative. And so they're more likely to be. Uh, to be open to interracial partnerships later in life as well, and to me, that's such an important lesson um, that for for why schools should be desegregated and, and neighborhoods should be desegregated, so that people can come together, at, particularly at formative ages, um, um, in order to be able to, um, you know, just have a diversity of friendships um, and relationships in their lives, which I think would make society healthy for everyone,
1: uh, as they age. You talk about whiteness as being the baseline. Explain what did you find with the beauty standards that people are embracing. Sure. Jen, do you want me to?
3: Yeah. Why don't you, why don't right. you take that one? Yeah. So, um, what we found, I mean, I think answering this question requires that we consider what the kind of BIPOC, the, um, respondents of color mentioned in terms of beauty standards and their experiences negotiating beauty standards. In general, um, what we found is that many people of color either professed um, so that they um, they experienced, so for example, people of darker complexions experienced um, kind of the devaluing of their skin tone within their communities at times, um, within their own families at times. And they also mentioned how like the media represented um, what is beautiful, what is attractive as something that is closer to European features or close or lighter, not necessarily white, but also lighter, okay? Um, And so what we argue is that colorism most certainly is a a very powerful um, structure that shapes partner choices and desirability patterns that leaves those who um, don't fit that kind of beauty ideal at a disadvantage um, when online dating. Um, There were even some participants who mentioned how some people might misrepresent the way they look on the photos. So, for example, there were participant um, study participants that mentioned, "Well, I thought this one person looked like this, but then when I actually met them in person, like they clearly tried to make themselves look lighter on their photo, like that was a misrepresentation." And so, yeah, I think uh, this is just a a good um, a good reflection of how color matters, right? How color really matters in addition to race, that the interest color, colorism and and racism both intersect together to shape the experiences of so many people who are using online dating apps.
1: Now, you talk about the Atlantic Monthly article, 1956. Tell us why that um, article was important in showing the progress of race relations.
2: Oh, yeah. So we referenced that article in the book when we were doing kind of a historical background. Um, And that kind of goes back to our point that um, today people often think of one's intimate choices having really nothing to do with racialization or institutionalized racism. right? They think of it as just an individual choice. This article was written by um, a white segregationist from the South um, in the 50s. And he was basically, the article was a a polemic against um, school integration and saying, You Northerners, you will find out uh, the problems that will happen as a result of this. Your daughters will be marrying black boys and blah, blah, blah. Uh, You don't realize the harms of school integration. And what this really shows, and the point that we are making, is at its heart, racism in the United States really comes down to fear of interracial romance and uh, family making, because that is seen as um, an affront to, you know, white networks of wealth uh, resources. Um, It it can dismantle, um, you know, um, essentially white supremacy in many ways by the the burgeoning of multiracial families. Um, And so, We just found that to be really interesting because it was this real articulation of racial preference in a 1956 article. um, And we felt that it really brought home the point that's often been forgotten today, uh, that it's interracial romance or interracial um, antipathy, uh, separation, at the romantic or personal level that is responsible in many ways um, interpersonally for the larger societal problems that we see um, around racial inequality in and um, in a white supremacy, which is what we live in.
1: From all the chapters that you covered in your book, can you give us some nuggets of things that you found that you were just amazed about?
3: <laughs> hmm.
2: Well, you know, I would say one of the things I found really interesting was that these the outcomes that we found were not just about race, they were about race and gender. So, And you can't separate the two in, in the way that this happens, right? So um, when we look at women, heterosexual women and gay men, both of whom are looking at men as potential partners, what we find is that White men are the most desired by all groups, with the exception actually of black gay men, which is interesting. Um, But every other group um, uh, contacts and responds to white men more than any other group, including their own race, if they're um, Asian or Hispanic. We expected the same thing to be for women, for white women, but that's not the case. What we actually found is that for straight men, heterosexual men and gay women, whose object of a partner is a woman, What's most desired among them is same race. They're same race. Um, And that unlike for those looking for male partnerships, there is a more porous boundary crossing. So So straight men and gay women are more open than straight women and gay men to going outside of their race, even though they prefer their own race. But these groups draw the line at black women. So there's a definite anti-blackness that plays out, but that anti-blackness is primarily about black women. Um, uh, and it's not that black men are highly desired by the other groups. It's just that they're not, there's not a specific anti-blackness. There's also an anti-Asianness, an anti-Hispanicness and anti-blackness. Um, whereas when looking at women as the, as desired partners as primarily black women who are excluded um and you know i i think our findings have had have, le- have led to a lot of um again you know this is at the statistical level there's a lot, lots of individual exceptions to the rule but i think it's really hard um for people to read over and over again that you know black women are the least desired um in these dating hierarchies um and Sometimes having the data, even though we might know or suspect it to be true, I think it's really, really hard for a lot of the black women we interviewed to see that the, st- the statistics play out their experiences as well.
3: Um, I think another nugget is that I found particularly interesting and important to highlight is that <clears throat> black, um, white women were, I think, some of the one of the most discriminatory groups out of women. Correct, Jen? Yes, and I think definitely. that's important to mention, um, just because just in general, there's been so much conversation around kind of racial politics and white women's participation in kind of reinforcing hierarchy and in their engagement in in uh, racist practice um, in public. So, for example, there's been like you know the memes on the Twitter feeds on like what is it like the Karen moments and this and that. Um, but those particular Karens are kind of like this extreme case, right? This, uh, extreme case of, of someone who's like, you know, extremely overtly racist and just acting a mess in public. Um, uh, violently, etc. And of course, crying, because so that's part of it as well. However, with online dating and like, uh, you know, something that seems so benign, and I think it brings in a larger group of white women. Um, and, you know, we find that they are the, uh, the most discriminatory um, compared to, to other women of color on the dating app. And I think that's something that I find as a really important nugget, um, an important takeaway as well.
2: I do want to make one point and I'm not being a Karen here. Um, I think that, um, one of the things that's really interesting that we found is that, um, Hispanic Asian women and to a lesser extent, but still significant black women were very likely to respond to white men when they contacted them, um, and people of their own races, but primarily white men. Um, and so, in some ways, um, whereas white women were likely only to respond to white men first and foremost, but so while black women were seem to be more open, it's and and Hispanic women, Asian women seem to be more open than white women. A lot of the openness is geared towards white men, as well as men of their own races. There, there isn't actually black women is, are an exception that we can talk a little bit more about, but Asian women are and Hispanic women are very unlikely to respond to black men who reach out to them Um, or Asian, you know, Hispanic women are less likely to respond to Asian men who who reach out to them, et cetera. Um, So there's just some really interesting dynamics that are complicated that need to be unpacked. Um, But black women of all women tended to be the most open. Mm
1: -hmm. What is the overall message you want your reader to take away once they finish reading your book?
2: Um, I would say, um, you know, this, is, this is something we're not saying that, you know, you're a racist if you have, you know, racial preferences, uh, or you, you know, click off your only your own race when you're, when you're, when you're online, um, searching for someone. However, it's really important to think about why you're doing that. Uh, what are the structural reasons behind that? Um, and to, to stop and think, because even though it seems like a very minor, um, kind of activity and it's in the privacy of your own screen that no one else can see that the, everyone else is doing the same thing. There are systematic racial hierarchies that are operating when everyone's saying it's, oh, it's just individual preference is random. It's idiosyncratic. It's actually not. It's systematic. And, um, the difference is, is that now we have this digital sexual racism, which makes it also much more seeable. Um, and that's manifesting itself in even uh, more pernicious ways um, than we would have thought. So, you know, I would ask that people, um, you know, not use dating websites that have algorithms because many, uh, or, or, or ask their, their dating websites what their algorithm consists of um, is race part of the algorithm of who they're even able to see, um, when they're, when they're online. Um, and I would ask people to reset their filters, um, and be open, uh, to meeting people who are different from them, because that is the beauty of, of the online platforms is that you can meet people who are very, very different from you. Um, and that's a good thing for society.
3: Yeah, definitely. You know, as sociologists, we're always trying to, I guess, get Get our students get the public to move beyond this kind of individual way of thinking about racism so you know know, racism as kind of you know the psychological disposition this bad apple situation the karens were running around but rather as jen said racism is in fact systemic so for example um, racial preferences are related to you know larger social issues social forces that shape those preferences that impact um that shape our perceptions of entire groups of people that might shape people's belief, for example, that for some reason, Latina women are just so extra, you know, hypersexual, again, related to the media, related to all these different kinds of social control institutions that propagate negative images about entire groups of people. Um, And so going back to what we can do, I think, you know, Perhaps working on the algorithm could be something. But also, I think, you know, the dating companies can do more. Um, You know, more aggressive steps need to be taken to immediately stop these users who are acting, who are are acting violent um, towards people through racist misogyny. Some research also, I believe, reports that, you know, dating apps are not doing enough to protect LGBTQ people. Users who are in areas that are like actively hostile to those people. So um, these companies do have tremendous a tremendous amount of influence in kind of designing how daters approach one another. And I think they can become far more socially conscious. Um, they can take the lead in educating their users about what you know digital sexual racism. Um, they can also do more to protect people's privacy and safety. For example, through ensuring encryption, maybe, um, and they also can take a lead in maybe hiring more diverse employees that take this socially ju- conscious approach um, at all levels, including in design. And there's a lot of amazing work that's doing this now. Actually, thinking about kind of more racially just algorithms, etc. But um, I think an argument that we make at the end of the book really is that all this will matter so much more um, if we also work to dismantling kind of these intersectional impressions in our, in our everyday lives, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, um, in our workplaces. Um, because again, what happens online is a reflection of what's happening offline. But I think that digital sexual racism Kind of reinforces it, amplifies it, amplifies the type of racism that is part of our society.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next projects you'll be working on?
3: What are we working on, Jen? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, well, we're, we're both working on different projects. We can yeah. talk about that. Um, but we we there we do are working on a review piece on. Um, Annual Review of Sociology, along with Ken, um, one of the other co-author on this book, uh, which is basically sort of a um, review of all the literature up to now on racial assortative mating. Um, so very much has a lot to do with what we've talked about today, but um, looking at all different kinds of um, advances that have been made in the study. So that's a, a, um, um, a project that we're uh, currently all working on together. Um, and then Celeste is working on, well, she just published a second book actually. Yes. Well, no, it's in,
3: it's in, you know, press or whatever it's called, but, um, yeah, so my, I'm working on, fin- I just finished up my second book, which is actually on West African care workers in Portugal, their experiences of gendered racism in what we call a, uh, kind of post-racial, anti-racial context, allegedly, and how they resist those forces in their lives and in their neighborhoods and their own families. And I'm in the middle of starting a project that I guess kind of connects a little bit to online dating in the sense that I'm interested in kind of this whole idea of, Racial distance, um, but I'll do it through the lens of Black real estate agents, um, their experiences, kind of working with community community members around, you know, access to housing and um, you know buying and selling within neighborhoods, and of course this connects to issues related to residential segregation and social distance, et cetera. But specifically through their experiences.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to all of those projects. Thank you again for being on the show.
2: Great. Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.